the movement from self-certainty to perception, you right. know, right. it's like, I get it. I mean, it makes sense. I understand. I mean, f- for me, I, mean, I had a, a number of thoughts and notes that I jotted down, not least of which is nobody talks very much. There must have been like a, 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 a huge mine filled with semicolons somewhere in the Yenna region uh, because this book, the number of se- semicolons per page is like oh, yeah. nothing I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, the syntax is so strange. And it's I don't, very bizarre. It's not, it's not secondary. I mean, that's something I think I will continuously come back to yeah. as kind of part of my thesis on Hegel. Like, the syntax is what gives the dialectic its life. Like, it's not some accessory to the text. Uh, so you should to... you should read uh, Dan Smith, who used to be here. He's now well, he's out of academia now, down in Texas. He wrote, I think, an excellent piece. It's called like Bad Writing. Um, if you text me, you know I'll forget. But if you text or email me, I'll remember and, and find the site for you. But okay. his claim there is that the movement of Hegel. He uses Hegel, Adorno, and I think Zizek, and he's like. It's negative dialect, whatever. But the claim is precisely what you're saying, which is the syntax is the pedagogy. Right. You know, um, right. so it's just a site that you can use. And it's a smart article. It's Dan. He's a smart guy. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll have to. I'll write it down. Dan yeah. Smith. Yeah. You said? Yeah, Dan he's, Smith. Yeah. And it's, 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 the title of it is like bad writing. Okay. These are, he's taking people that have conventionally be considered, have conventionally been considered bad writers. And he's saying... It's only bad writing in the sense of some romantic experience of reading. It's not bad writing in the sense of a of a pedagogy, and right. that those are different kinds of things, you know. So okay. it, yeah, it's it's Hegel, Adorno, and I, I'm pr- I really feel like the third is Zizek, the third example he takes, but I'm not sure. Could it be okay. Butler with the bad writing awards? <laughs> it could have been but it could have been Butler. You might be right. It could have been. Yeah, she's always talked about with that conversation. Yeah, but that's a different. I mean, that circumstance was so political, like yeah, I mean, implicitly. So a lot of people don't like Chris Holcomb wrote a wrote and published an essay on this and never really knew because when he showed it to me and I was like, Chris, you completely ignore the politics of this journal. Like it's a journal that gave her that award and it's an analytic, it's a conservative analytic journal. Right. And if you look at the winners, they're all continental, you know, continental philosophers. Well. It's funny to me, like, reading this and then going to Butler and being like, she's too confusing. Like, yeah, but Butler is, like, like very clear and, like, there's an emphasis on clarity and simplicity when you look at someone like Hegel or right. someone like Deleuze. Like, you know what I mean? Like, what? I've never Come had on. the sensation that Butler was difficult to read. Yeah. Me neither. Agree yeah. with you. Yeah. Agree with you. I yeah. mean, not in any fact, way... Not in any sense that any philosophy is difficult to read. Right. Right, right. Right. And unfortunately, but unfortunately yeah. she wrote that, she, I, the same has been true whenever I teach that in grad classes, all, grad students across the board are always like, why do people think this is so hard to read? Like, this doesn't mm-hmm. seem that hard to read. I mean, it's philosophy, you know. But right. uh, unfortunately she wrote that, she wrote a defense after, uh, this is a couple of years after, after getting that award, she wrote a defense that was published in the New York Times and her defense was difficult ideas require difficult writing, which is the worst. I mean, to me, it's the worst defense. Like, the, the proper defense is this is not difficult writing for people who read philosophy. Right, yeah. She should have just you know? done that take. Yeah, that would have been a more yeah. modest take. 
Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Well, because what she does is she links the ideas to the quality of the writing and, and that's a whole representational argument that shouldn't she shouldn't you wouldn't of think all that people she would be supported. <laughs> that's that's right. Right. I, I regret, I mean, it's so much because so many times I've heard people reference Butler's defense and I'm like, oh, I hate that defense so much. It's, there's a really good mm. one, which is, this is a specialist idiom like every other specialist idiom in the world. Right. And right. for that specialist idiom, it's not to, like, mathematics is bad writing, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not written for us to understand, like quantum <laughs> mechanics, bad writing. Yeah. Nobody says... Quantum mechanics is bad writing because they understand it's a specialist language, yeah. an idiom for physicists. Yeah, it's a technical language, and insofar right. as Butler's is a technical language, it's pretty simple. It's symmetrical. Right. It's not right. like it's not even that ambiguous when you like if you compare it to Hegel or, or a lot of these writers that we're that we're dealing with. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although interestingly, people don't really say that about. Deleuze, even though Deleuze is way harder to read, but but because it's so um, so clearly making you know neologis, you know because it's so clearly kind of playful, mm-hmm. for whatever reason people just don't associate that with bad writing. They just like oh well they're being playful. They're just making up body creatives and right they're right. creative right right yeah. yeah. But I I have a strange I mean I I'm still my uh, my reading and relationship with Butler has, has sort of evolved over the last few years and she's still pretty central to my project but if you read any of like her most recent stuff it seems like she's kind of regressed into just a basic liberal humanism like and yeah. i know there's there's a difference between pop butler and like hard theoretical butler but right, the right. the pop butler is not good for me it, like she's published a couple pieces in just like popular magazines recently and it's like yeah. These are just strange, like, really conservative arguments, you know? Yeah. I don't know it's, if you've it's read hard, it. Yeah. It's hard to imagine. I, I have. A, I've yeah. had the same response that you did. It's like, this sounds like liberalism to me. Yeah. The, the only thing that I give her a break for, well, there are many things I give her a break for because I think she's smart as fuck. But, yeah. like, being in a position like she is is something that I will never understand, which is I have to write, right? I, I get to write for you guys, right? Mm-hmm. And if for a fairly narrow group of you know, of sort of theory types in the rhetoric field or whatever. And maybe there's a few outliers in philosophy or whatever, but like, I don't ever have to be concerned that the bulk of the people responding to my thing are going to say, make it intelligible to me, Mm -hmm. you know? And she really is. I mean, she is a, she's more of a public figure than, and sort of intellectual anymore. And I don't mean that as a disparaging comment. It's because of her extraordinary success that she's called on and asked to speak to, you know, the Palestinian question at MLA, for example, a couple of years Mm -hmm. ago, right, when there was that. And she is called upon to offer a perspective. Well, you know, she can't possibly be a master of all of this content and and also speak to all of these constituencies in that sort of... You know, Derrida, you know, there, there's, there's Derrida that's like that as well. You know, there are mm-hmm. times where like talking on apartheid and, and he, he usually managed to turn it back to some sort of esoteric question of hospitality and et cetera, et cetera. But, but there are moments where I'm like, yeah, I just can't understand the position that a person like that has gone from this and now they've got a, we call it a larger public, but it's just a different 
it's a different right. public. And to, to write, it's, it's like, I don't, you know. Yeah. Well, you assume a political position and then your views sort of by necessity have to be narrowed in a way. Have to. You know? that, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, her, her defense of academia in that one article, I forget what the publication was, it was like, this makes perfect sense if you're speaking from her position. <laughs> so, right, right. so, but from anybody, from my position, from your guys' position, it's like that argument, it, it was so elitist, which whatever, yeah. there's, there's good and bad versions of every writer. So it's like, well, I guess this is just the version I don't like. I mean, you know what I mean? So you, I, I don't know. It's kind of arbitrary, right. maybe. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, and she and and I think I mean, look, the other thing to keep in mind is how totally excoriated she was by so many feminists back in the in the uh, '80s, and well, the, rather the '90s, late '80s and early '90s, because of her stuff was unreadable, and mm-hmm. that she was not supporting the cause and my take on that was that bothered her right like because she very much saw herself as an activist yep. uh, activist theorist mm-hmm. and uh, and so yeah it does seem like her work became more recognizably activist rather than yep. recognizably I mean she's still smart as fuck like mm-hmm. obviously but but it just right. seems and I again that's a circumstance where I can't I can't imagine it you know I think that that's my sense too. I mean, think about the the sort of genealogy and series of critiques she gives at the beginning of Gender Trouble, where yeah. I mean, it's not just that you know she got shit for being you know quote unquote unreadable, but she also like really went after a whole bunch of you know concepts that are pretty central to Absolutely. most versions of feminism. Like that's there right. is a recognizable thing that we can call woman, woman right? Mm-hmm. Right. Which to me, I mean, that makes Butler far more interesting as a, I mean, as a, as a feminist to actually take up, you know, woman, the category of woman as a question and to to question the, I mean, to to my mind, you know, like Tur and de Beauvoir are, you know, at the, uh, you know, are the most interesting thinkers in that arena. But someone like Sixu, who just sort of like, and to, like assumes uh, sort of like prefigured versions of masculinity and femininity, and then ascribes some kinds of to kinds of writing, is just like you know you you're not you're not actually thinking about gender. You're just thinking about the way that contemporary gender norms get distributed and pointing out very obvious disparities between them. But you're not thinking about gender at all. Right. Mm-hmm. right. I mean, that's a well. That's, what's that's that? the tough part. Yeah, what what seems to suck is that like the more activist like the bent of your writing becomes or the more like if you have dogs in a fight, the less adventurous and provocative your yeah. thinking becomes, which yeah. doesn't seem like it has to be the case. It just seems like that's usually the way it goes, you know, yeah. which it's like someone like Zizek, he 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 will have like kind of activist political tendencies but the writing itself doesn't seem to be burdened by like a responsibility to humanity or to a specific group, you know, which I I find that uncomfortable sometimes reading him. But I also, I don't think I could ever like fully just endorse something, which is what Butler seems to lean into later in her career, you know, that kind of orientation. I don't know. I mean, it seems like you, you, you could find a balance between those two, but for me, the more explicitly like about social justice issues you become, the less adventurous the thinking. I, I don't know. It's mm-hmm. just yeah. 
Well, you have to harden yourself into a position to advocate yeah. for something. Generally, means yeah. you have to articulate the boundaries of the thing that you're advocating for, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and I've always felt like, and this is just in the microcosm that is the classroom, um, but particularly for undergrads, but I've always felt like current events, like I felt a responsibility to say something interesting about them. And I often don't have anything interesting to say. And, and, I, and I feel like that, like, and that's a much, much smaller microcosm. I imagine, you know, projecting that to the position of, like, you know, Judith Butler or, or, or Zizek or someone who, you know, where anything right. that they write on a topic, and they're being asked constantly, mm -hmm. like, hey, will you write about this issue? Will you write about, will you do something on this issue? Will you come give a talk on this, you know, mm -hmm. to this group or whatever? And yeah. uh, I, I, I can't... I can't imagine that that sort of success. I, I think that you're right. It would just sort of like, well, now I've got to have something interesting to say about something that's, like I said, a current event where I'm like, well, things happened and other things happened. And Well, some stuff, I mean, have you read really anything interesting about the pandemic? Like literally over the past year, have you read anything that was like, wow, that's really interesting. Oh, bylines give it away. There's nothing to read beyond the byline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know, man. That there was this brilliant essay in this PNR special issue uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. by yeah, this yeah. Mucklebauer guy. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. You had to but write actually, it. You had to write it. You didn't read anything. Right, no, you had right, to write it. I had to write it. You know, and it's it's actually it's about styles of reading, right? And mm -hmm. that's what it ended up being about is how to resist the rage response of resentment. I mean, that's what it was about. And what right. the interesting thing was, I went through, I didn't read all of the other ones. I read just a few from some of the folks that I know, and they were all rage responses. They were all <laughs> ang angry. And I was like, wow, that's in an interesting juxtaposition. I wonder, because, you know, in my typical cryptic way, I don't say, like, hey, we need to resist the rage response, and here's a possible way of doing it. I just sort of start with, here's rage, I want to do something else, you know, so it's mm -hmm. like it can easy, easily not be seen as in dialogue with them, but yeah, you right. know, how to do yeah. so, how to, th I mean, to me, thinking is like, it's, it's hard, right, and, and it's particularly when you're pissed, or in my case, in the last couple of months, especially last week, when I'm worried or stressed, like, yeah. thinking is not something I can do, I mean, it's just, and again, I mean, I don't mean like, can I manage to deal with my life? Of course. But uh, can I like do anything that makes me go, huh, that's an interesting direction. I'd like to pursue that. I, I can't. This is why, I, by the way, I, I love teaching um, that, that section uh, in book two of the rhetoric um, on the emotions. And the way that Aristotle sort of like diagnoses, you know, what I would call like a physics of affective dynamics where yeah. like, you know, uh, what does anger do? It takes up an object as the, as the object of its anger. It has to draw boundaries around. It has to create a rationale. It has to create sort of like a harm done to something. Right. And, you know, it, it tightens your focus and makes all of the boundaries uh, um, look much that much more concrete and it opens up avenues for more for quicker more decisive more powerful action but by god does it shut down the capacity to think and be curious about something it right? does it does, mm -hmm. it does for me for damn sure yeah, yeah. Well, and I, just think, I, mean, I just like thinking about emotions in that in that way and less about the qualitative, you know, like what's it like to be this? Like, no, like how does this situation, how does, you know, how, what this thing that we call, you know, sadness or fear or whatever else, how is it really much more of like a, 
you know, a set of relationships and a, a set of like stylistic relationships mm-hmm. to to others. Yeah. Well, and then anger's anger's more yeah, comforting than totally just <laughs> anger's more comforting because it takes an object, like you said. Like w- without an yeah. object, it becomes just sort of yeah. a flat uh, depression or existential angst, you know, and and that's the much more un- uncomfortable state because there's no distinct object to, to pin, you know, to pin down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, and look, that's, uh, frankly, that's a perfectly good description of what the Trump political sphere did quite well, is it took this amorphous ennui of, you know, working mm-hmm. class America and said liberals, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and like, fuck the liberals, let's piss them off. And that's really became like, yeah, to hell mm-hmm. with the liberals, we're going to, you know, and it, that really became the, the focal point. Yeah, I mean, comfort is the yeah. right word. Right, scapegoating yeah. is sort of a it's like a psychosocial coping mechanism more than anything, you know. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. that goes back to like I mean we don't have to dive into the text right now, but t- to the despair that Hegel talks about actually cultivating, like we well, you need yeah. to actually level mm-hmm. that out and find existential like uh, uh, despair and angst, <laughs> like that's the mm-hmm. that's the good place. That's the productive place for Hegel. (laughs) He is talking about, in the first section of Sense Certainty, basically about the overconfidence of, I mean, it's a certainty, but it's it's Mm -hmm. certain because it's wrong, you know, in the sense that, like, uh, it, 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 the, the purpose of it is certainly not to access the complexity of relations. Like it's the exact sure. opposite. It's it's simplification. So in that way, I mean to relate that kind of crudely to what we were just talking about. I mean, scapegoating is a way of simplifying relations. You know. Yeah. But it's yeah. interesting, and this will obviously be important to the negative movement of the dialectic, is that simplicity isn't like the pure simplicity of immediacy, right? Is that even within the self certainty, there's still the creation of the the sub. This is. This is the this is the production of the subject object relationship, right? There is the mm-hmm. the object and my relationship to the object, and it's that relationship that becomes self certain, which is despite the fact that it's two things that it's it's covering over the the, the complexities of of the you know whole how do you call it, the whole series the um, a rich complex of connections or related to various ways and other and other things, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so I had a couple thoughts on the beginning of this. Um, one was, again, he deals with the problem of beginning quite definitely, right? Like, a, mm-hmm. like he did in the preface. Of, um, but, you know, he's like, all right, let's start with the simplest fucking most obvious thing here, this sense certainty that's just sort of like, this is, right? It mm-hmm. is. Um, and and that gesture itself to me is interesting, right? Like uh, in insofar as, you know, there is a teleology built into. Let's start here. Um, that's you know that you can't you can't raise all of the questions at once. You have to start somewhere, mm-hmm. right? So and what you know obviously what he does is he says let's start with immediacy. And then by page two, be like, and we'll see that immediacy is immediate, right? Like, it, it, it's not immediate. So it turns out we were wrong. And there's this, just the list of times. There's this one where he, like, walks you through the steps on one chunk of it um, where I just remember, like, 
the number of times he's like, and I was wrong when I said, and it was literally like a sentence before that he yeah. had said that thing. Like, <laughs> I was wrong when I said this. Now I know this. And then the next sentence will be, and I was wrong when I said that. Now I said, you know. Um, and so it's, it's, it is that pers- constant sort of, oh, yeah, it's, that's on uh, for paragraph 117 down through all, well, basically all of 117, where he's just like, I did not perceive it correctly. Uh, I didn't understand it in its truth. This was not its true being. It's just this series of statements Undermine statement, statement, undermine statement. You know, it's mm-hmm. that constant process. Um, nevertheless, I still do feel, and, and so I get, like, given all of that, right, I get the whole, like, we got to start with something and we're going to immediately undermine the thing that we started with and show that it's already mediated and whatever. But mm-hmm. the whole idea of starting with simplicity and moving to complexity is, I, I mean, I feel like you've built in your whole world historical view from, from the word go. Right, like, which is that, I mean, for instance, I can imagine, it's imaginable to me to say, okay, let's understand what consciousness is. Let's not start from a baby. Let's start from adult consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. Like, let's start at the point of complexity. Let's not think of it developmentally, or rather, not that there isn't development, mm-hmm. but to say that development is going to teach us something about its later manifestations contains right. a whole lot of uh, what I would call like analytic in the mm-hmm. in the traditional sense, right? Analytic assumptions of uh, you know we can partition this out if we can remove the draw. So there's something very kind of empirical in, in a sensibility about it. Like let's get rid of the uh, as many variables as possible and start with simplicity. Yes, we're going to show that simplicity is already more complicated, but it's still not as complicated as the next complication. Mm-hmm. So you're but, still moving from simplicity to complexity. But the, the, describing that teleologically, I think, is is right there as, as well. To say, like, look, I want to figure out what consciousness is. Let's look at the child's consciousness and look, look at how it develops. Well, you've already turned, like, the adult con- uh, consciousness, whatever it is, into an endpoint, the development right. as the process by which it realizes those ends, right? So, as you right. say, from the moment right. go, you've already pre-structured the... the the route along which the the analytic can can take place, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, that, that's right. So it, it can, I mean it, that for you know how I am with difference and repetition. So I feel like I'm going to do this with uh, you know with phenomenology spirit. Like here's my beef. The very first sentence: the knowledge mm-hmm. or knowing which is at the start is immediately our object. Cannot be anything else but immediate knowledge itself. Like well, yes, it can. <laughs> right? Like it, it, I mean, it really can, right? Yeah. Like, in other words, it's not even ludicrous to say yeah. you could start your investigation of consciousness not at what you presuppose to be the simplest version, but in right. the sort of standard, the, the norm version, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. let's start there. And you'd have a whole different sensibility of questioning. Uh, if you if you start, now it doesn't mean that you would get rid of the negative and get rid of all of the. It doesn't mean that at all. It's just that you would lose the progressive uh, uh, component that is from literally from the first sentence that is it's baked right. in there. No, I mean I agree. Like certainly Hegel is not Nietzsche. Like he's not he's not yet at that movement of thinking. Like in its in its complexity or in its idiosyncrasies. But I do think, I mean, just to complicate this point a little bit, I think that the some of this prefigures Nietzsche in the sense that 
you know, from the the movement from the lion to the child, like back to the child or to the is that how it goes? Like right. so, the the right, child right, is right. sort of the end point, the overman. The child is the end point of right, that, yeah. right. I think there is, even though Hegel's text does kind of frame itself as that progressive teleological like. Bildung, Bildungsroman thing where like you start from the the immediacy of sense certainty and then you get like the complexity of self-consciousness and in mm-hmm. adulthood I, I think basically what he endorses kind of paradoxically is a return to that immediacy but just with a shift in perspective so absolutely to the phenomenology know, right I mean, right just, yeah right so it's a, and it's quite you, clear I mean one of one of the things that's really good here is that you know, when you go through sense certainty the second time after, you know, reading the first two pages, he says you go back to self uh, to sense certainty, but it's not the same sense certainty that it was because no. you have that mediated sort of mm-hmm. awareness of how the movement of sense certainty works. So right. to experience sense certainty after one has become aware of the dynamics of sense certainty is not exactly sense certainty. It's, it's like right. sense certainty prime, mm-hmm. you know, right. um, Right. So, so you're right. I mean, and, and I do think that's, I mean, I think that that's right. I do think that that's uh, built in here. But nevertheless, like whether, whether or not, you know, we want to write it, you know, big or small, it still is developmental. Mm-hmm. And so it still is going to be hierarchical. It's, it, it can't not be. So you can't just, uh, for instance, just step in and say, um, look, uh, um, sense certainty and the immediacy of the recognition of physical objects is actually like, just one component among others. Like that's mm-hmm. that's a different thing than saying it's the starting point or it's even the analytic starting point. Mm-hmm. You know, um, right. and and I just I, I just again I don't think it's wrong and I don't think it's I mean I don't think that at all. You have to start, and mm-hmm. and what I find admirable in Hegel that I hadn't appreciated as much as before is here's my strategy for starting. I'm gonna fucking start and then I'm gonna undo the starting point. Right. 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 right, you know, th- that to me is that's a strategy for mm-hmm. saying, you know, s- starting is a bad way of thinking of this, you know, because yeah. <laughs> it doesn't right. start. I mean, I appreciate all of those underminings and all, and and just the way that the, um, you know, oppositions take on a much more nuanced function for him because they they don't eradicate each other or create any kind right. of stasis or or a paralysis. Is that this is it is the sense or nuance producing mechanism and so I, I mean he does that with the starting point it's also interesting to me the way that he sets up you know i, I hadn't thought of his take on the universal in in quite this way mm-hmm. as he does in the first few pages either yeah, where right. like universals are sort of like topo topoi or tropological yeah. Yeah. um uh just like generic sets of relationships that then get figured within contingent circumstances so the content is completely indifferent the only thing that like the universality is is applying this here this here this this here i here this like these sets of relationships that then um you know or organize the 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 it's it's content into like different objects into different moments and those, but it, that, but that organizing schemata for him is, um, I, I mean, exclusively, but not reductively based in in the negative, right? Where it's it's um, you know the uh, it it's 
not just this because it's 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 not just this because it's not that, but it is sort of like in this particular set of relations of not this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it yeah. finds it's almost like it's coordinates, um, not based on just like an opposite, right? So we don't have to think about clumsy binaries like man woman or whatever else, but we can think of like how well house tree, right? Which have yeah. no A piece of paper. Opposite. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Right. What's the opposite right. of a piece of paper? Yeah, well, exactly. You know, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I was also like, I wonder, and I don't know enough in terms of linguistics terminology, but the, the categories for him are indexicals. You know, that's the category, the this, here, mm-hmm. you know, now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the wondering if there's, yeah. uh, I'm wondering if there's other categories that would make it seem kind of different um, to, to, to start with. Um, mm-hmm. the, the kind of, and I agree that there's a self-evidence to the this here. There's a, a self-evidence to the thinking. This is the critique of the thing that I just said, I guess, is there's a self-evidence to the thinking of this here being primary and basic. And it even makes the animal analogy directly, right? Like the, even animals, you know, have mm-hmm. the this here now uh, component of it. Um, but, you know, like I just kind of wonder... Uh, is there another way? Is there another way of of starting that that would make a big difference um, in in terms of how it plays out? I mean, I I don't know. I, I have two thoughts. Yeah. Well, I have, I have two thoughts on that. Like well, the one is just to think of the connection to Freud's um, uh, Das was it not Dasein Da was the German here there Fort Fort Da Fort Da Fort, Fort, Fort Da. Fort da. Right, yeah, the distinction of the you know the child. I mean, this would be to take the developmental orientation to things, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. just like applying for here, like applying that universalizable you know set of relationships in order to make sense of or to construct the you know the the reality of the mother being there and not being there. Um, the other thing is just to I mean, just as a thought experiment, I don't have you know I don't have a clear take on this. But okay, so you, we can think of the indexical or the demonstrative class, which are always set of relationships, right? What about other grammatical sets of relationships like prepositions, right? Mm-hmm. For, from, yeah. by, well, how, how, how would that create a different, you know, a different starting point, a different logic? Do you, would you? Do What's, you he uses the conjunction, right? All, isn't it also, I think? Also and insofar is used also on Also and insofar. So that's, mm-hmm. and that's how he deals with mul- the multiple, right? The problem of multiplicity, multiple attributes. Which, by the way, right. did fucking salt taste differently in the 19th century? Because I would never to think of describing uh, uh, salt as tart. Yeah, tangy uh, or something. Yeah. <laughs> tangy, right? Like, I mean, like, was, did they have different salt? Uh, <laughs> really yeah. shitty salt. right um so yeah also and uh, insofar yeah so that you know that that's his way of saying you know those i mean it's really i mean you're right the underlying that and i think maybe underlying what both of us are saying in in a sense is there's a real grammatical quality to this that's Mm -hmm. kind of unacknowledged right Mm -hmm. like that he does he does in fact mention and this is where I, i wanted to bring this up for nate because this is where he goes to failure and I'd be like, why, why go to failure? Um, so uh, it, it is about the, the in, inadequacy. Um, this is in a paragraph right before the perception chapter, 110. Paragraph 110. Um, mm-hmm. So there have been uh, gestures towards this point throughout, but you know, he doesn't really explicitly talk about language yet. 
right? Mm-hmm. Because he's not dealing with language. Uh, he's dealing with just sort of sense perception. Right. But, um, you know, in, in 110, and this is about <clears throat> a middle of the way through that first paragraph. So it says, um, if they, well, let's, I'll start earlier. It, at the top of page 66 for you, Nathaniel, they say, it says, they speak of the existence of external objects, which can be more precisely defined as actual, singular, personal, individual things, each of them absolutely unlike anything else. This existence has absolute certainty and truth, they say. They mean this bit of paper on which I am writing, or rather have written, right? So mm-hmm. a little like this. But what they say is not what they, or what they mean is not what they say. If they actually wanted to say this bit of paper, which they mean, if they wanted to say it, then this is impossible. Because the sensuous this, that is what cannot be reached by language, which belongs to consciousness, i.e. to that which is inherently universal. And that's the moment where I was like, for, for Nate in particular, I'm like, but you have to presume that the purpose of language is to represent and capture. And if you don't presume that, then there is no failure, right? right? Like, you know, so, yeah. so that you have to presume, that, to say that the sensuous this cannot be reached by language is mm-hmm. only if you assume that language is trying to capture the sensuous this. Yeah, well, this, this correlates with um, paragraph 95 toward the end. You know, I don't think we have to turn to it, but he's just writing about like how nothing is lost when you write it down in terms of the propositional truth of the thing. You know, we write that uh, we write down this truth. The truth cannot lose anything by being written down any more than it can lose anything through uh, through our preserving it. If mm-hmm. now this noon we look again at the written truth, we shall have to say that it has become stale. Right. But the, that I mean. How does that reconcile with his, his much more robust take on, you know, the, the reductiveness of propositional truth writ large? I mean, the only thing that I can think there is that because we're not, he's dealing with the confusing situation of having to write about not writing, mm-hmm. you know, so he's having to write it, but what he's talking about doesn't involve language yet. It just involves the sheer awareness of the thisness of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but how to talk about the thisness of things without talk, mm-hmm. right? Because thisness only occurs within language. And he's writing in the early 19th century. So, I mean, to me, that he brings language into the question is itself interesting and relevant. So, yeah, we write down this truth. A cru- truth can't lose anything by being written down, except for yes, it can, right? Like, I mean, except for... It loses everything by being written down because it's no longer this night. You know, when I read it the next day, it's this morning. You know, so, right. I mean, I, I, I think that he, he's hinting at, I mean, I, I honestly don't know if there's a more extensive discussion of language specifically and its role in, in this formation. But even if there is, it's going to be representational because it's, it's, already, it's already prefigured as representational. Right, you know that well, its its goal is to capture, and it both you know, and the answer is always going to be it both does and doesn't, right? It, yes, it captures it, and and it also lets something loose or enters into a relationship with the other, which from a higher level captures it differently, which lets in a different, you know what I mean? Like it's constantly going to be that story of attempt to totalize failure, attempt to totalize failure. So in that sense, language will be like like knowledge or like consciousness. Things that are attempting to comprehend or to totalize whatever its object is. 
Mm-hmm. This makes me want to turn to Johann Herder and his philosophical fragments and, and his stuff on um, the philosophy of language. I mean, he's a contemporary. I have to say, I, I'm pretty sure that no one has said that sentence that you just said ever. <laughs> this, this makes me want to turn, but that's pretty cool. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, just because like he he's attentive to the um the, like the relationship between language and materiality and and like you know, writes about, he's writing about the evolution of, of language and talking about like the geo, like the geography in which language is developed. And is like, look, like seafaring, like languages that, you know, sort of evolve in like seafaring areas, they produce the world differently than, you know, they do in agricultural or like mining areas. And Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I, I have, I, it's been so long since I've read, I read it. I was intrigued by, uh, by it as an undergrad, and then I returned to it in one of Byron's classes because one of his mentors um, is big into Herder. Um, and I think uh, Thomas Rickert is, is sort of interested oh, yeah. in that stuff as well. But you can, you know, like just because he's interested in this sort of like the material linguist, uh, lang- like language connection. But it would just, it, it just seems interesting in this case that that you know, that grammar, like, is not so, it still can be um, universal in terms of its practical mobilizations, but you would have to, th- but this would have to sort of, like, ground that universality and, like, you'd have to imagine that universality being run out on a, on a flatter plane, that it is yeah, in yeah. sort of logically prior, but it's contingently prior. And another way to look at the the universal here, I think, is for Hegel, at least on the level of sense certainty, is it's obscuring context, right? So it's a failure to negotiate one's context. That's one part. That's one part of the universal. The second part, which is kind of the proper Alf Hebung, is the negation of that uh, first initial negotiation. So mm-hmm. the negation of that negation is what enables sense certainty, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the kind of universal movement that he's trying to articulate here. And so, I mean, one, that's, that's one way I think you could look at the problem of his representationalism. He's inheriting a tradition, quite obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we talked a little bit about Bacon last week, uh, Nathaniel, and about his kind of clear project of trying to invent or predicting a kind of transparent language that could accurately identify its objects in the material world, etc. Hegel's obviously saying here, we never get, there's no, that's not possible, it's never been possible, and it's stupid to even try that. Um, so the, I, I do, I mean, there's no doubt that he is still in the tradition of representationalism. Again, he's not quite Nietzsche yet, you know. I mean, Nietzsche goes past that at a certain point and says, like, we can just play, right? I mean, that's kind of the step yeah. past the the um, the compulsion to capture. But yeah. I mean, for Hegel, that's still that's still part of the dynamic. It's it's inescapable, you know, to an extent. Well, and, and just just to say, because to me, uh, 
and this would fit for Hegel as well, but those two positions to me are two sides of the same coin. The idea yeah. of a language which is absolutely adequate to its object and the idea of an incapacity of language to encapsulate its object. Those to me are the same. I mean, the, they, they rest on the same assumptions about language, the same assumptions about the relation between language and objects. So even though they're opposing, you know, I mean, again, that's a Hegelian point, right? Right, that right. Yeah. Um, but if, if anything, I'm sort of doing Hegel on he he Hegel yeah. there, right, to say um, at a certain point. But, but I do still, I mean, that, that is the recurring thing for me is to figure these things as failure um, or as inadequacy or as a lack of truth or all of those types of things. I feel like he's really good at that in most cases because like what Nathaniel was saying about the universal is really great. I mean, in essence is another word where you read it in this particular movement and I'm like, oh. I get why universality. Yeah, that's universality, and it's mm -hmm. the it's a universality of the particular. But it, there's a different, you know, it's universal from one level. Then at another level, it's not at all universal. It's entirely right. contingent, right? So, right. so it's it. And in order for it to really be universality, it doesn't have to be universality. Whatever. Like, I mean, I get the I I get those moves, but it feels to me that the the quote unquote next move and that that we're using Nietzsche's name for isn't a step past that it's mm -hmm. just a different step it's not right. like you know you go with this sort of fa failure or absolute transparency model and then you can move to something like performativity it just seems to me like it's a fundamental I mean maybe I'm wrong about that it mm -hmm. just feels like a totally different you know it's not a development. It doesn't feel like a development. It's just like, hey, there's a premise here of languages. And by the way, language here is a synecdoche for consciousness, for knowledge, yeah. for all that shit, right? And so the whole question of capture, as it's figured here, is going to be attempted capture, failure. Attempted capture, failure. And it will play out. There's literally nothing that won't be an example of that. And, and that's brilliant. And yet, I also feel like that's just a different orientation into these questions mm -hmm. that what if it's never been an issue of of uh of capture or of comprehend that that's never the telos that it's never that absolute universality that's the telo you know so th there's a way in which as i'm talking through it i think that telos is actually much more much more powerful than maybe we're giving it credit for it's not just like something that you could remove and have a kind of, you know, more flat plane Hegel, it's like you wouldn't have Hegel anymore if you, if you took that out because it's just so built in. I, it feels like Right. Well, my, my tendency is to just, like, kind of go back to, like, almost a crude, like, biological or evolutionary argument where it's like, which is what you see, especially with the sense certainty stuff, where it's like, yeah. how can you think of senses especially on an animal level, without the notion of capture or comprehension, right? Like, yeah. how can you think of the use of your own senses without the, the notion of, like, appropriating or navigating one's environment successfully? Like, it, it almost seems like you need that, that binary. But those are, totally, those are totally different things, right? The capacity to respond to one's environment and survive is totally different than the capacity to accurately represent one's environment to be able to make decisions yeah. in response yeah. to it, right? Right, like, right. One's pragmatist, oh, the other's ideal, you know. Well, yeah, yeah that's that, true, yeah. 
I mean, like the animal doesn't, I mean, this, like, in fact, I think turning to the animal was a great opportunity here. I, like, was because it allows us to subtract human consciousness and let's ignore, you know, the animal theory people who want to, like those particular animal theory people who want to sort of like erase the animal human distinction by inserting human consciousness into, mm -hmm. into or some yeah, kind yeah. of proto version of it, which is just to say like, if I'm a, a, a critter, you know, like my sen my senses exert force on me, right? There's, there ends up being sort of, you know, unequal relationships between my sensory organs and the world around me. And then I like instinctually learn to respond to those forces, yeah. right? And, you know, the ones that habituate ways yeah, that are... habituated, right. Yeah, right. But that doesn't, that doesn't, you don't need a representational, like to me, you it's, it's much better to... success. But failure and success for a different, a different metric is, is governing failure and success, right? And one that we can, like, the, fail, the, the failure success uh, rubric has nothing to do with whether or not that's actually a tree I'm looking at, no. right? Or whether, yeah. in, for John's right. example, whether that's actually the same saber-toothed tiger that I'm, that I'm right. looking at, right? Like, right. It has, the, the failure success is like, did my response to, to this network of forces uh, lead to my death or not? Right. 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 And that's only a failure to do something that is that is, like, you know, that's not a necessary. It's only a failure to live or die. But that's you know, well, that's that's I mean, not like bring, this is this is an interesting point because then in that sense, the animal is much closer to the truth of the dialectic than the human is because they, they bypass the whole issue of the thing in itself. Animals have no concern mm -hmm. over whether they're accessing yeah. the tree in itself or the squirrel in itself. They just care yeah. whether that thing is useful for it, which is that's basically... The, that's, the point of the, that's the point of my saber-toothed tiger story is that right. like, which, which one of the cavemen is true, is, mm -hmm. is the truer, the one who dies because of seeing difference or the one who lives and writes the book on the truth of the saber-toothed tigers, right? Like, or, or think right, about um, the, the lamb-hawk example with, with Nietzsche's. Like, for, for the lamb, the hawk is a hawk, right? And it and achieves its hawkness by its predation on lambs, by its violation of, of the sanctity of the lamb. For the hawk, like, the, even, the, even, it, even the notion of the lamb as a lamb is secondary at doesn't best, matter. right? right. It's, right. it's but yeah, it's 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 a meal, you right. know, so and, I mean, and even that isn't like a um, a categorizable thing, right? It's right. Like that. That's where that's where that's all master slave. Like what you're what you're pointing to there, Nathaniel, is the recognition of another consciousness. Yeah. Right. Like, and that that's not what's occurring, you know, at that level. But that that changes for Hegel. That changes things. Like the right. that when when a consciousness recognizes another consciousness, or even what we're doing, what all three of us are doing right there is, I mean, it's kind of an amazing thought experiment we all just sort of easily performed, which was, let's project an understanding of what it would mean to be a, a critter, right? Like, yeah. I mean, but when you think about that for a second, that's an extraordinary experiment, right? Like, I am going to try to imagine what, it, what I think it would be like, which of course is all that tells us about is the presuppositions we have of animality, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? It doesn't tell us anything about animality. It tells mm -hmm. us about the presuppositions. But nevertheless, that's all we can work with, right? right? Mm -hmm. that's, all, that's all that we can do. And, and, so that's what we, and so that's what we do. 
you know, so that, but that, what we're doing is we're projecting an imaginary version of consciousness and trying to understand it as, you know, the hawk and the, uh, and the lamb and well, how they experience it. At least we know yeah. that no animals have written, like, about the noumenal thing in itself. So we do know that much, right? We do, how do we in, know that? How do we know? So far, we haven't written about it in English. They haven't, they haven't written it in a language, fine, but that doesn't mean they haven't written about it. tried to communicate to us about it. <laughs> well, they know well, they might. <laughs> see, you see how every time you're going to try, man, we're going to be like, what do you mean? That's all my dog is telling me all the time, all and I he, don't know how to hear all it. All <laughs> your dog's thinking about is Kant, and he just He's can't like, tell Ding you. on seek. Yeah, Ding yeah. on seek. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's actually all they're thinking about. Is the thing make itself. sure you make sure you keep that one in the podcast. We got to yeah, have yeah. the barking ding on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know that, but that does. I mean, I, I get these thought experiments. That does seem like a fair assumption, though, to me at least. I mean, I realize that there's oh, a whole sure. there's an emphasis sure. on like on animality and like kind of a post human relation towards or like a, right. a post human. Uh, what's the word? Uh, like well, look, uh, I mean. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I, to me, I'm not, I, and let me, let me be clear. When I say we don't know, that's not a bust move or reason to stop conversing because the same would be true of all of us, right? Like, so right. Uh, with yeah. each other. So, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's a, it's a point that you can point out for, you know, whatever, a parlor game sake. But yes, of course, that we have to say, like, from, from the perspective, it seems reasonable that, like, the ding on seek is not something that animals, uh, care about right like and and so yeah fine like i'm totally it's I'll also that one up. it's also <laughs> not something that we really or it's not something that i care about and yeah, I, I, it's yeah. not something it, it's not something that hegel cares about insofar as he is aiming to surpass kant right. <laughs> you know so he's not he's not dealing with the thing in itself in the same way at all I mean, well there like, is there is none or rather i mean the that's, thing in that's itself thing is language or con- the yeah, concept or, or the mediation. movement, uh, yeah. Uh, the mo- yeah, the movement of mediation, negation. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's where you know that right. it's. I mean, his solution to that problem is that Kant's move is a moment of the dialectic. Right. It's not the end of the dialectic because mm-hmm. the 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 lesson is the dialectic. <laughs> right. Know? Well, Kant was unwilling so. to accept that, like the sort of labyrinthian uh, complex of language and mediation, that that's all there was. Like he yeah, was unwilling right. to accept the kind of like the weird dread that might accompany that sort of revelation. That there's right. nothing outside of those folds of of mediation or or, or, or difference, right? I mean, right. that's where that's where you get to. I mean, Derrida's like. I mean, when you said, uh, you know, we know that no animals have written about it, I was like, well, do you mean Derrida's kind of writing? Because you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, and that's why Derrida. I mean, that's one of the big reasons that Derrida uses the word writing and keeps the word writing when it's not, he's not referring to, you know, the scriptural kind of writing that we think of, um, but writing in general as iterability of the mark of what, of whatever, of whatever kind. A lot of this, a lot of this passage, especially towards the beginning reminded me of, of Derrida and the critique of presence and all of that. I mean, the whole, this, because this was the first time he really explicitly invoked temporality, right? I mean, of course we, there's becoming is all throughout the preface and everything, but here he's talking about specific tenses and how they relate to each other. And I was like, this is just sounds like the critique or the critique of a metaphysics of presence, right? Yeah. I mean, it sounded like Derrida. (laughs) There was also, I agree with you. And, um, but it did remind me of those, you know, those hours of like in undergrad of like 
talking about like, well, it's not really now because whenever you say that, it's immediately pa- like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I'm talking about time, I wish, dude. I, I, you're right. I wish when yeah. I was 18 years old, someone had just been like, that's been done. Shut the fuck up, Uncle Bauer. <laughs> like here, yeah, yeah, yeah. here, just, just read this because that's not insightful. <laughs> the like, moment that's, you that's say early. now, it's already <laughs> gone. <laughs> right, like you know, when it, ba- back when I was eighteen, nineteen years old, and I was like, "That's really clever and insightful." I was like, nah, not mm-hmm. really. Yeah. <laughs> that's like page. That's like page four of the phenomenology. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. I know some of the examples are so like almost juvenile, but then mm-hmm. I mean, if you take the if you run the implications of them, that's when they become sort of disorienting. And even disturbing. Like, so that is kind of a dumb example. But I mean, if you really, if you want to run out those implications, they, they are kind of staggering, you know. What I do appreciate, though, in Derrida is he almost, he allows his formulations occasionally to be kind of clumsy, which is because, I mean, to me, it's like, because thinking it is clumsy. I mean, it, there's no yeah. avoiding that clumsiness. Whereas someone like Karen Barad, uh, there's like a, there's a real cleanliness to the concept space time mattering right she coins the term and then it has a nice neat definition where it's just a collapsing of the binaries and it's like it's not as simple as you you don't simply collapse one into the other and then it's a nice like oh everything's relational it's it's not one does not simply collapse the boundaries between time and space (laughs) Space. yes Uh, but by the way what you're saying there what you're coming in my terminology is like your beef and i totally get this your beef with her is style right Mm -hmm. your beef with her it's not what she's saying right Right. like it's the how of the thinking and it's like you're making it too clean too easy i mean i like like the word clean and i get it because there are times with other thinkers where i'm like it's just too neat it just feels too neat it feels too tidy and yeah yeah it's like it's it's messier than this and it needs and it needs that messiness is a constitutive part of the thinking and of the concept, it's not just like the thing you have to go through in order to get to the concept. Yeah. Right. And now you've got space time mattering, TM, you know, like <laughs> C with a circle around it or whatever, right? Like, yeah. And I, I, t- I mean, I get that. I get this sort of that sense of sort of self certainty, you know, with which uh, she, not sense certainty, self certainty, self certainty, yeah. right? With, with which she proceeds. I get that. I get mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you, the, you the, want to be a messier. You you like the messier writers. Well, right. I mean, the the compul- the compulsion to tame the mess is just yeah. all throughout Barad, and it's like that's that to me is almost a dangerous compulsion. It's not. Well, we're just, all t- we're all taming the mess in that sense. for sure, for sure. But there are different ways of like you know like you're more oh, or less okay, got it. Nice, tidy, yeah, neat yeah. versus. <laughs> Right, <laughs> like, like I want to feel like the writer is struggling a little bit. I don't want them to be like, "Got it, done." <laughs> well, I mean, and it can go back to the scapegoating thing. You know, that's a way of taming yeah. the mess. And there's better. Yes, there's there's more dangerous and less dangerous ways of taming the mess. I'm not saying my way is like the ethical way, but I'm saying the assumption right. of Barad's ethicality is a problem for me. Anyway, yeah, yeah. we don't have to. Yeah. But look, I'm with you on that. I mean, that's the the thing. I mean, you know, I have a different variation on Barad because I've different. I focus on different texts primarily, right. and I focus mostly on a response. But I, I get that move. I mean, I feel like I say, you've heard me say this in so many classes, both of you guys, of like, it's there. There's a sense of a moralism, 
Uh, of like, here's the right way to do it that always turns me off. I mean, always turns me off of, of many thinkers who I would otherwise find interesting. I just don't get how you make that presumption about yourself that you would have access to that kind of knowledge that for everybody, that you can prescribe a set of relations or a way of relating that's yeah, or the for best. anybody. That, yeah, for, for one per, for myself. I can't <laughs> for even, yourself. I, I can't make a policy for one person. Why would I <laughs> right, assume right. to be able to do it for everybody? I mean, yeah. Just, the, I mean, just the presumption that, that violence can, like there are, we're, I mean, when we're talking about ethics, we're generally talking about like violence and we've got like two problematic relationships to violence. Either one, that violence can somehow be avoided and life can continue to exist. Right. And two, that some like kinds of violence are just okay, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah. you know, I, either the notion that violence can be avoided altogether, it can't. And then, you know, it's then if you move from that to say like, all right, violence can't be avoided. So let's find the right forms of violence or the okay forms right. of violence. The yeah, less violent kinda, like, violence. Yeah, the less violent violence. Like, uh, like you, I mean, as soon as you start feeling okay to... about it. Right, right. You have to lean in, for me at least, you have to lean into the notion that everything at root is a, it has to be a form of violence. I mean, at yeah. least that, that if you're buying into, to some degree, the, the dialectic, I mean, that's certainly the case. Every single mediation yeah. is a violence. With, some, with someone like Barad, her, the, the, when you get to the root of relations, it's not violence. Like, the yeah. primordial set of relations, whatever you want to call it, for her, interaction that's not violence for her. And it's like, yeah. I mean, I just don't get, I don't buy that premise either. Do, does, she, does she say that or is that a sense that you... It's implicit. No, no, she, has, she okay. wouldn't, okay. I don't think she would ever come out and just No, but she, no, but she might, I mean, yeah. she, she might, but I was just curious because, because I agree with you. I mean, that's where to me, that's where Nietzsche's will to power, right? Life is will to power and nothing right. else. And so it is violence. I do also think, I mean, you know, we'd have to be careful about each of these words, but I th I feel like I'm sympathetic towards the sense of like, look, I want to try to be less, less violent or less violent violence. Like what I just said, kind of parodically, I do feel like, yeah, I want to figure out a, mm -hmm. again, not let. It's not a question of quantity. It's just a question of like, I want my violence to be something that doesn't cause too much suffering in a bad way. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. that is the goal. Yeah. Like, you are trying to figure that out. But that, but that is always situational. It is not a policy, right? It's not like, okay, yeah. follow these six rules, right? It's like, no, it's, it's only... That's where I end up going right to Aristotle, the, the, you know, the character ethics, right, of that is like, look, it's about cultivating dispositions of ways of being in the world yeah. and right. not about understanding them. You know, yeah. and and that's all. But but again, we're all teachers. That's why we think that way. You know. Yeah. But. And to 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 me, though, real quick, sorry. To me, I mean, to yeah. in order to to cause less suffering, you have to kind of accept the basic premise that you are causing suffering, some kind of right. suffering. You do always. You do. And it's the presumption that you're not is what leads to more. It's like with the with Descartes' presumption that animals are automata or whatever. Mm -hmm. It's like that justifies the slaughtering right mm -hmm. so it's like yeah. well they yeah. can't they can't they don't have any feelings so we can fucking kill them and it's like yeah. you have to at least accept the basic premise that 
everything is that all relations are violent to some extent. But I think I, I like the way that you put it is like we can kill them, which is different than I mean, it's the problem I have with that isn't the killing them. The problem with it is the, the license of the yeah. word can. Right. Right. Is that I mean, is to go back to our the problem of the comfort. It's like to, to, to find the comfort where your actions have no consequence or no meaningful consequence that can be sort of like folded back on you in, in, in some way like that could fold that your violence can fold back onto you in some kind of guilt right that yeah. I, I want to be on team righteous team blameless you know my violence is okay my violent or my violence is not violent or my violence is okay or my violence is okay because I agonize over it right like no you have to like be fully immersed in the violence without ever pardoning it or you know just you know it's hard it's hard to remember sometimes though because i i i agree with the sense that you're articulating there nathaniel i very much do i'm thinking of this in terms of the last few weeks of my life and uh the extent to which like my response to all of these things has been a retreat and a strong desire to retreat which is just Mm -hmm. like i want to get away from um the world from the outside mm-hmm. like I want to eliminate my exposure because exposure is vulnerability mm-hmm. and and damage right and and so so I get that kind of the oscillation part as well of like look I don't want to do any damage so I'm just going to fucking not move right like I, if I could just stay in my bedroom and watch Netflix no one's going to get hurt by that um, right. including I, mean, I've, I have these yeah. fantasies as well where like you know, you escape to the cottage in the woods and, yeah, right. you know, you're just away from people, right? And, and yeah, be, largely yeah. because of the vulnerability, both your own and, you write and, your stuff. Other, and those of others, right? Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. like, the, 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 I, every time I, I go there, the longer I sit in that place, the more, like, my, my life atrophies to the point yeah. of, yeah. like, sleep or nothing, right? Or death. I want to, right. or, is, yeah, which is all equivalent to death. Right, right, right. Yeah, Which, I mean, you're right, and so that's you know, I'm hopefully entering a bounce back phase, but I definitely had this, like anything that pulled me literally physically like out of my room was yeah. I experienced this like almost terror. I'm like, I don't, you know, um, but interestingly enough, um, I don't know if I mentioned this, the book that I revisited, the sci-fi book that I mentioned this last time mm-hmm. when we talked. So. Uh, just, just for some background, the, book, the name of the book is Blind Sight. Um, and if you guys recall, I, I kind of, well, you didn't know me then, Nate, but about a decade ago, I kind of dove into sci fi. Remember Nathaniel? You told I mean, me about just, this one, yeah. R- right. Like, like I, I just kind of told me about this one. Yeah. And, I, you know, um, I, I had read sci fi my whole life, but never really like read, read. I'm just kind of, and then about 10 years ago or 12 years ago, I was like, you know what? I'm going to fucking learn sci fi. Like, I'm just going to read it. And I have for the last decade. But just coincidentally, one of the first couple books I read was this book called Blindsight by this guy, Peter Watts. And uh, it just blew me, the way, blew me away. And I just, but, but because it was one of the early books, I thought, well, that's how sci fi is going to be. And it's not, right? It's not nearly as good as this book. And I just went back a couple of weeks ago and reread Blindsight and was like, holy fuck, this is maybe the best science fiction book ever written. Like, it's, and it's very dense. It's not page turnery, although the plot is incredibly simple. It's just a first contact, you know, first contact with an alien. Mm-hmm. But it's a very dense book. But one of the interesting concepts, and there are so many of them in this book, is this alien species experience communication as violence. 
And um, that's something that's just unfathomable to humans because communication is the thing that we think, now how we communicate we might experience as violence, but the act of communication is the way that we think of as kind of bringing things together, reaching an understanding. And for this, this other, we don't even really know what it is because you don't, to call it a species, whatever. But it's like, that's just not how they operate. Right? They do not communicate. They do not want to communicate. They do not want to be friends. They don't want to be enemy. They don't want to be anything. Right? Like they just want. Right. And the realization that one of the characters experiences is like, who's a master of languages and perceptions, and she's like, there's, there's literally no language to this species because they don't value this thing that is so built into us mm. of like even the simple act of you know, reaching out with, with words is uh, something that is like, you know, an, an mm. attack, right? Mm. And it, that, it's like, well, Jesus, I mean, what do you do? And the only answer is you leave them alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you yeah. just, you know, and it's like, well, we can't, we don't know, we can't even fathom, like, wait, you're telling me an alien species comes into our solar system and we just, like, leave? yes, that's the only way we're going to survive, is to just leave them alone. And by the way, that's really, really hard to do. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but... just think of, I mean, like, think about Althusser and interpolation. I mean, we shouldn't, it shouldn't be that much of a leap to think about communication, like, no, at its right. most basic level as being, right. of, uh, like, I mean, you know, not always intolerably or not, you know, not always intolerably violent. Productively. I mean, it's violent, but we think yeah. it is productively violent. Like, right. this is a violence that will push you, like Hegel. Right. Yeah. This is a, an incursion into self, which will make you a, yes. a better, higher version mm-hmm. of self. Yeah. yeah. That. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you guys ever want to, whenever I think about the unavoidability to... of, of violence, I you know I just like breaking down violence. Just to think of it in terms of it as violation, right? Just to violate right. the boundaries of something, and then as soon as right. you take that seriously, there's no such thing that isn't that. Right. 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 Yeah. Like, well, the, I mean, like the, the ending of violation is the ending of life. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. Every every relation is violent. I mean, that to me is like the ground premise of this book of the phenomenology yeah. is that every context is violent, and our method of dealing with that is, you know, it's sub it's on some levels sublimation and simplification, right? So if a context mm-hmm. is violent, you deal with it by simplifying it. And mm-hmm. uh, you deal with it by capturing it, capturing it, yeah, you know, capturing. as best right. as yeah, you yeah. can, you know. Yeah, and so. you fail, and you fail to capture, and then someone else later on captures it more adequately, or you do later on, or something like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Although, it, but think about—I mean, the notion of violation that's presumed there—you have to have, in order to have a notion of violation, you have to have a notion of integrity of some kind, right? right. Like, a, you know, right. that something is kind of self self-contained. So if if you open that up, I mean, this. This folds back on my failure argument is if you open that up, then there would be no violence, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, or you'd have to have a different kind of matrix for thinking about the differences between, say, language and shooting someone and all those sorts of things of like, it's not a question of a violation of an integrity because the integrity, and you could do this with Hegel, the integrity of self-certainty only exists through a series of uh, uh, ignored mediations of Mm -hmm. uh, non-self, right? Like that's... That's right. how the integrity of the self comes comes mm-hmm. to be. 
Um, but I think you're right. Like, you just need a different logic or a different grammar of, of, of violence, right? Because like, I want right. to be able to maintain the difference between shooting someone and speaking right. to them. And I, and, right. and I don't want to reduce either of them to like, well, I violated your, yeah, your, your boundary, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where the continuum, um, I mean, I, I, increasingly I think like these categories – we need to think a way of them existing on a continuum, violence, nonviolence. There's just a continuum, but without yeah. the poles. And I don't know how to imagine yeah. that, right? In other words, because the problem with the continuum is that it's, it presumes the preexistence All of, oh, there's yeah. an absolute violence or there's an absolute yeah. nonviolence. Like, no, there's none of that. There is only the gray, but that gray isn't organized by a black and a white. It's just all gray. And I don't really know how, or I don't know what the model or the analogy would be for thinking a spectrum without, you know... Uh, well, would Kairos be an interest, a helpful concept in that? I mean, just like what Kairos does to the concept of time, rather than thinking about it as being more or less or shorter or faster mm-hmm. or in those quantitative mm-hmm. terms, but like as the yeah. unique intersection of a series of, of qualities, like... You know this, like this violence is not more or less of anything. It is just the, it it is the phenomenon of this particular set of of um, intersections. Oh, okay. I you went into. I thought you were gonna. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to think about that. That's not how I thought you were gonna say it. I thought you were saying we should think of terms like violence the exact same way that we think of terms like kairos, which is that it describes not. Um, um, something versus a non-violent moment. It's not like the word violence refers to this is violence and implying that all those things over there are not violence. But it's just, a, it's a qualitative, like Kairos, it's not like, it doesn't, Kairos doesn't tell you anything, right? It doesn't, right. It doesn't tell you uh, when anything happens or even, ha- like it doesn't, it just... But it gives but it, you... It's, so it's, but, but a chirotic look at, at a time gives you like a, not a snapshot, but a, um, um, well, it does, it is kind dynamic. of a, yeah. right, it is kind of a snapshot of interrelations, right? So yeah, it's, yeah. What, what, what makes something chirotic in that sense is not any particular component of this, the shot or the scene or the yeah. time span, it yeah. is the, the, the relations and so mm-hmm. violence would be that too, right? Violence means a, a series of relations among things that maybe work to one of those things' detriments. And we're right back at mm-hmm. Spinoza, right? Sad passions, yeah. right? Like it's the things that reduce your capacities to affect and be affected rather than increasing them, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the danger that could be like, um, I could imagine a certain kind of utilitarianism getting implemented there, reintroduced, yeah, which, is, yeah, which would be to yeah. say like, all right, you know, what are the quantity of units of happiness and for how many, you know, bodies is it interjected into and how do we measure that against the units of sadness that are, yeah. you know, even like unequally introduced into the... Into that's why, that, that's why I mean, this is where I agree with, G, you know, Zizek or, I mean, there's many other thinkers, but like contingency have to, has to has to be thought as irreducible. Otherwise, it mm-hmm. is a just, it, you know, like, in other words, if I can figure out the ground upon which contingency is based, then it's going to lend itself to all sorts of calculus, all sorts mm-hmm. of, and right. you know, we know how that thing operates. So contingency has to be thought as irreducible. Like, contingency is only contingent to itself or something like that, right? Like, one of those kind of phrases that doesn't say anything that makes you go, uh, you know, but... <laughs> yeah. 
Well, and the, and, the, and, the, and the ethical demand is to orient yourself to that irreducible contingency right. in some way. That's right. As opposed right. to, like with the understanding for Hegel, the, the main function of the understanding is to do violence to contingency. It's doing right. violence right. to contingency in order to reduce self-harm. That's right. right. And so yes. to get past that, uh, you yeah. have to basically, I, I don't know, like sub subsume yourself in that contingency in some way. Yeah. Accept it. Uh, orient yourself towards it, and uh, that's, I mean, that's what leads to the despair and dread right, that right. Hegel wants. But, or, 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 the, or the joy, because that would be another way of saying the way right. that I thought in the invention book, for me, it was to the sense of affirmation, which we would call irreducible contingency, within, you know, the right. countable and articulable and measurable and all the, like, the irreducible contingency within the utilitarian. Right? Like, in other words, it's not like stop with the utilitarian shit, let's you know, go irreducible contingency. The, mm. you, the utilitarian thing brings its, its own irreducible a, contingency. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Um, that's true. Yeah, it's, it, it can't be anything other. So this whole economization and quantification uh, of culture is just a way of spreading chance. This is why this... Uh, like our conversations and, and my, you know, my chance to sit and read quietly to myself has become so important in the, in the Trump years because I, I, I felt the same way. I felt like, you know, I could actually focus a lot of my attention on critiquing the nuances of something called liberalism and progressivism right, and the Enlightenment. Right, right. And then Trump realized I, – I, with Trump, I realized – do I seriously just have to like? Is am I is my body best utilized just throwing rocks at the idiots? I mean, is yeah, this that's right. seriously what I need to be doing? And that to me is just, that that is deadening. You know that that is. I mean, that's that, a that great way. Of that's a great way of phrasing it too. I think that that's that's a good way of phrasing what I feel like I've been struggling with for a couple of years now of like you know, doing the things that we do and that we really enjoy doing in this context is so circumscribed mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and yet so important to me, right? Yeah. Like so yeah. important. I mean, the only, the, no joke, when I was going, when I was at the lowest points and I'm like, I gotta, I, I gotta pull myself out of this because I'm like, I'm going into hyper reclusive mode and that's just bad. And I'm like, I gotta, and what did I do? I read Nietzsche. Because yeah. that's it. Like, that's the thing. Yeah. And, and like, I, it's not because I was studying Nietzsche. I'm like, this, this reminds me of the joy. Of, I think I texted you guys. Like, it's the only thing that can pull me into the joy of thinking. Because I have, there's no joy over here. This is, and right. I need this. So it's like, it's so deeply, truly therapeutically mm -hmm. important yeah. in that sense, you know. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I think one of the things that's happening is I'm developing, and this explains, you know, my turning the corner on Hegel over the last few months is like, when you have a therapeutic relationship to these kinds of thinking, it's a very different understanding than what I would call the kind of like analytic continental tribalisms mm. with which I was trained and with which I was raised and the aversion to psychoanalysis, the aversion to negation and these sorts of things. And I'm like, when it's a question of therapy and no longer a question of like fighting this battle, like I... It allows me to read Hegel pretty differently, and yeah. that's a really good thing. Like I like that, you yeah. know, the the injury or whatever to my psyche that I've been experiencing made something else available, right? Well, let's plug the title of the podcast, right? Like when it becomes a matter of thinking with Hegel, right? Just like an opportunity to like jump in this sort of like these waters and swim around in them for a yeah. bit. 
Like that, yeah. that's just a totally different orientation. That's how we should. Yeah. Fr- that's how we should frame. I mean, at least for me, that's been one hundred percent true of our interactions. Truthfully, from the beginning, it's just become more palpable for me in the last couple of months. But like, this is yeah. so therapeutic. It's yeah. like, oh, yeah. it, it's. Uh, I mean, I look forward to this. I like can't wait to do it. <laughs> yeah. Like, no, yeah. Oh, we're just gonna and and just like you know, I know we're running out of time again, but I mean. Just like the last, the last couple of times, I feel like we've just had. I mean, last time I was knocked out after twenty minutes, but <laughs> the 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 couple of times before that, after I got back from DC, we've done this like four times, and three of them were like to me, the best ones we've done. And yeah, each yeah. time, like in today, I feel the same way. I'm like, this was so great. Like, I'm so glad we did this. You know? I know. <laughs> so, I've enjoyed so. listening. I, I've really enjoyed listening them to them as well because it, I mean it, it does allow me to hear the two of you differently and, and I feel like better right. you know mm-hmm. I mean I know especially in the earlier episodes when I was listening to the two of you I was like Nathaniel stopping like you're, you're responding to them but you're not hearing the questions you're not yeah. you know I actually attending to the yeah. sense of them yeah. and you know I, I also I, I, yeah yeah, like when I is, when I is. listen afterwards, it's always different. It's not yeah. how I recall experiencing it. And I right, do. Yeah. I hear your guys' stuff differently, and I hear I feel the same way. I'm like, John, shut the fuck up, but I don't. Mm-hmm.